Blog Talk Radio. Talk some baseball. 
in baseball, we will talk. And, John, I'm going to start with you before we go around the horn uh, as we go from broad to uh, specific as, of course, the, uh, the way you are supposed to do things, as we all learned when we were writing essays once upon a time. Uh, but this is not an essay. This is, this is a Major League Baseball team completely in shambles, completely inconsistent. What, what have you seen from the Mets in this first go-round uh, which all of a sudden was 38%, I think I heard earlier, into the baseball season? 38% of the baseball season is done. And, uh, and, and thankfully, uh, that's, that's kind of the high point where, you know, some teams are, are only through like maybe 10% of their season. So at least there's that. At, uh, at least we won't be playing a ton of doubleheaders in September, but we'll see. Uh, it's, there's a lot to dissect here. With this team, uh, I do uh, I do think that it really comes down to two things in terms of baseball related uh, problems that we have. The first is Pete Alonso not being able to pick up where he left off at the end of 2019. And listen, players struggle; it happens. But for somebody of Alonso's caliber to struggle when he had uh, I believe the stat going into Friday or Saturday was he had 38 at-bats where he had runners in scoring position. So a Pete Alonso anywhere close to the Pete Alonso in 2019, if we had had him, then this season would be a lot different. So, and I don't mean to pin everything on him, but that's a, that has been the, uh, a big problem with the team. And the other big problem, obviously, is the starting rotation. You went from a starting rotation of DeGrom, Syndergaard, Wheeler, Stroman, and Mats to a starting five of DeGrom, who's hurt, Mats, who's throwing meatballs, Rick Porcello, who's been a little better lately but very inconsistent, Michael Waka, who's been hurt, David Peterson, who's been impressive, but he's still a rookie and he's still a five-inning pitcher, and Robert Gazelman, who's just working his way back from injury. That's a tough drop in a, uh, in a portion of the team, in an aspect of the team that has been their strength pretty much since 2015 on. That has always been the linchpin of Mets teams in the last five years, and now they can't depend on that. Now they have to depend on other aspects, which you thought, well, this team looks, like, looks great on paper and offensively, and they haven't, they haven't delivered. The, the best portion of this team has been the bullpen and if you would have if you would bet money on that at the beginning of the season then I'm going to call you out and say you're a liar because nobody would bet money on that but I think Pete Alonzo struggles in the starting rotation right off the top has been uh there have been two huge problems with the team Mike I'm going to stay as broad as possible and he brings up such a great point about the starting pitching but the, the you know we're going around the horn at the beginning here I'll start with Pete Alonzo for you. Um, you know, it looked like he was starting to come around a little bit, but then everybody really kind of just let the ball drop with Philly. Well, they certainly did. Uh, you know, I feel for Alonzo. He is struggling. It's apparent. You know, but also they had a couple other steps, just to be fair. Uh, the Mets are fourth in total bases, seventh in runs scored. I'll cycle back there, fourth in team OPS but they're second in strikeouts. So, you know, some of that has to do with runners in scoring position, you know, and not putting bat on ball. But, 
it's not wrong to single out Alonzo. It's true. Uh, he's in the middle of the lineup, and that's what we now expect from him, being that he placed the bar so high for himself. Uh, but a little bit more than what he's doing right now would uh, go a long way. So I, I think he will adjust. I think he's, you know, one of those cerebral players. He's been consistent throughout his minor league career uh, and, and heading into last year, his rookie season. Uh, you know, he led the Triple A in home runs and RBIs, and then he was rookie of the year, and he did what he did. Uh, so... Pitchers have videotape on him. I'm sure they've learned things. Uh, but I think he's cerebral enough to uh, do his own homework and make adjustments. The problem is, you know, a 60-game season. Time is of the essence. So we really can't wait this out, you know. And, and here we are with this 9-14 nine, nine and record. And as we say, with 38% down, so, you know, I'll say it again, time is of the essence. Mm-hmm. You know, that's criticism being leveled against Alonzo right now. Rich, it, it's it's crazy. You know, John was mentioning the bullpen. Who would have put their money on that? But we have been singing the praises of the bullpen. But, of course, at the same time that we finally get a good bullpen, we finally get a good Robinson Cano, albeit uh, briefly injured. Um, isn't that the way it always goes? Well, it is, and, and that's why, you know, if you watch the post game, you know, Gary said before they went to the post game, then Wrecker confirmed it in the post game that, that this team needs to get more consistent. You know, they need to put everything together um, because, you know, there are so many different aspects to the game, as we all know. And if you think about it, the defense was great, you know, before this road trip. And that everybody was saying, okay, you know, let's put the defensive unit out there, which I don't disagree with, by the way. Um, but in this series, the defense fell apart. And then the bullpen was very good in this series overall, as you noted, but the starting pitching wasn't good. And now, granted, you know, Walter Lockhart, Walter Lockett was pressed into action. Um, and, and then you, can also, and you could criticize Rojas for leaving him in too long. Steven Matz was Steven Matz. He's 2020 Steven Matz, where – he might have a good inning or two, but in general, the body of work is bad. His ERA is 9.00 at this point. I mean, come on. This kid pitched in the World Series in 2015. He's not a rookie. He's not young. What is this 9 ERA we're looking at? Why, why is that 9 ERA we're looking at? Um, you know, so there are some injuries to the starting rotation. Absolutely, no question. The Waka thing. I almost was about to say you didn't see that one coming, but maybe you did. You know, Waka's got an injury history, right? The Mets, we both know they picked up Porcello and Waka on, on the cheap. They picked up both those guys on the cheap, and this is what you get. You know, you're, you're getting from Waka. Did you have reason to think this wasn't going to happen? He's been injured a lot, and now he's injured. Well, history best predicts the future. From Porcello, you're getting kind of up-and-down work. Well, look at Porcello's body of work 2016 to present. Cy Young, bad season. Better season, bad season. What is Porcello now? Up and down. You know, you're getting – none of this should be a surprise, you know. So the rotation hasn't been good. It hasn't been consistent. The bullpen's been, been pretty good. That, that, that's true. The bullpen is good. And, and Betances, his last five, five outings, five innings total, two hits allowed, no runs. 
So you're getting something there, you know, so you're getting that. But it's just if you think about the five or six core elements of a baseball team, this team typically is firing on one or two of them at a time. And and that's not good enough. And that's what you're seeing. That's why you're seeing them at nine and 14 coming off a sweep against the team that, you know, we all know the Phillies bullpen had a 9.6 ERA coming into this season. The Mets didn't touch them. They, they, they touched Norris the first night. But they didn't really touch the bullpen. I mean, somebody's beating that bullpen up. It wasn't the Mets. And, and I think that's why we find ourselves where we do, that um, they can't put anything together. You know, again, if you think about starting pitching, relief pitching, defense, hitting, you know, on, in terms of on base, hitting for power, they're doing maybe one or two of those things at a time. And, and hence, like Bill Parcells always said, you are what your record says you are, and they're 9-14 and 14 in last place, and they probably deserve it. Uh, I'm just thinking of Bill Parcells coaching the Mets now because 9-14 record is, of course, we're 38% into the season, uh, but that doesn't sound like a 38% record. And in football, that would be at least closer to an entire full season. John, the Mets are elixir. This is constant with, you know, we, we hear like, oh, you know, the Mets are coming off a good series, and, well, boy, the, the Phillies are floundering, or the Marlins are floundering, or the Braves are floundering, and then we are elixir. Um, and, and going to what we were talking about with Rick Porcello, it seems so far the Mets have gotten Rick Porcello's entire career in what is already a very strange season to begin with. Absolutely, and, and uh, the other thing, too, is that you saw it juxtap- juxtaposed with Zach Wheeler, who they gave up because they didn't want to pay $23 million a year for a third starter. Okay, that's, you know, I, I, I can kind of understand where you're coming from there, but it goes back to what we say. If we had had, if, if the Mets had ownership that was befitting of a team in the number one market in the world, then you would think that maybe they would splurge for that luxury because starting pitching is not a luxury. So not only are you seeing Rick Porcello's entire career play out in three starts, you're also seeing Zach Wheeler's career over the last two seasons play out in Philadelphia, and he's pitching really, really well. And he's We're talking Cy Young candidate now. So it's it's frustrating to see that, like Rich said, you get what you pay for. They went and got two starters to fill Zach Wheeler's role. And what's the line about why uh, Buzzy Bavese traded Nolan Ryan? Because he, because he said, what is it? I, I'm, I'm going to trade. If, I, if I'm going to have one 10 and 18 pitcher, I might as well have two pitchers that can go five and nine for the same price or something like that. I think that's what they were thinking. But as usual, it, it backfires on them. And you saw it You saw it today. And that's such a good point. You know, we got to bring up Zach Wheeler in all of this, unfortunately. That's just like, you know, Neil Walker at some point. I think he even scored a run today, Rich. Uh, it's just these ex-Mets that just Pedro Martinez clinching – playoff, you know, birth against the Mets in 2009. These little moments that just rub in your face the failings of the Wilpons. Well, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, it all starts at the top, and I think we know that. And I think um, 
the decision to let Wheeler go for money and then buy two cheap pitchers, like John just said, you get what you pay for. And, and you know, and I can use another cliche, you reap what you sow, right? Because that that's the truth. It's the truth. And that's what you're seeing. And then, you know, Mike and I often rail about this following point, and I'm going to do it now. It, it, the team is just not well put together. It, it has talent. There is, I think it does, you know, because – Louis Rojas in the post game today said, well, we have talent, you know, and we're going to get out of this and we're going to start playing like we have that talent. You do. I think, I think a lot of people would agree. But the problem is the talent doesn't fit together. You have a team that has – you have Dom Smith, who's your best – he has, leads the team with six home runs, 300 batting average, and, and you have to try to find a way to get this guy in, in every day, right, because – you have Pete Alonso, you have Dom Smith, you have J.D. Davis, you have Robinson Cano. You have all these guys who probably are best at D.H. You know, granted, J.D.'s showing us a little bit of defense at third lately, but until today. Um, it, it may have some talent, and that's why this team, I think you said it earlier, Sam, is good on paper because you look at paper and you're like, oh, they've got some guys who can really rake. Okay, you know, okay. But the problem is they can't find a way to get these guys in the lineup because they're just not meant to fit together. And then when they do try to put them in the lineup, you have my favorite thing, I say, with a big sarcastic smile, which is forcing round pegs into square holes and getting guys playing out of position. And then what happens? Then the defense suffers. And defense will cost you games. So I don't really have a good answer. I mean, yeah, it starts at the very top, but I also have to give you know a little bit of the blame here to Brody for the way he put this team together. With the parts that, again, if you if you stack things up on a piece of paper, it might look okay, but it, it just doesn't work. You know, where are you going to put these guys and get an optimal lineup that could score runs, but hello, play some defense at the same time? The the Mets are constantly doing one or the other. It's like when Porcello starts, the question comes up: Are you going to put the defensive team out there with Jimenez and and Guillaume? And when it's not Porcello, are you going to go with the offensive team? With Cano, you know, with, with Cano out there and Rosario, maybe I, I, it, it's like it's it's maddening because the Mets, because of the way this roster is put together, they're forced to have to make that choice to go all defense or all offense. It, it's it's a team of it, it's like it's like a rotisserie team. It's like you know you grab a bunch of players. Okay, let's go with this without thinking about putting a team together, and that's one of my biggest concerns. <laughs> Can I just, and just let me throw out there? Can I, can I just also throw out there before I go to you, John, uh, with what you want to say? That uh, what's interesting about what you just said, Rich, is that Jimenez and Guillermo have been both hitting. Go ahead, John. And, I, and that's actually what I wanted to riff off on because he said he mentioned round pegs and square holes. I think the current round peg in a square hole is Jimenez. And when you talk about the way Brody put together this team, the Robinson Cano trade, and granted, he's hitting very well now. But that Robinson Cano trade continues to have ripples because if this trade wasn't made, then it would be a lot easier to find a spot for Jimenez on this team every day, maybe even playing second base instead of third base. Jimenez is a guy I think, just like Dom Smith, should be playing every day, especially with Andres, uh, Ahmed Rosario struggling at the plate. And I, it would be an absolute shame, but it would be absolute Mets for them to lose Andres Jimenez because they couldn't play him every day and certainly because they couldn't play him over Robinson Cano. Oh, God. 
Uh, Mike, here's where I'm going to go with this. William Montanez, and uh, if I pronou- pronounce that incorrectly, please correct me. He was talented. Uh, it reminds me what we're talking about of the Isaiah Thomas era Knicks as well. Jamal Crawford, Zach Randolph. Uh, I can keep going on, but we're not talking basketball. There were a lot of talented people on there. It's just this is an ever-going narrative with these Mets teams. You're absolutely right. The one constant has been the COO. Uh, Nelson Doubleday warned us out the door, run for the hills, boys. He saw this coming uh, and said very frank, you know, Fred, and I'll put in quotes, Jeff, they're going to run this team into the ground. The prophecy is fulfilled. So, you know, I can only, uh, well, I'll say I'm in lockstep with, with John and Rich. This team is poorly constructed. John brought up the Cano acquisition. Look at the money that they put in Cano. Yeah, they got a reliever on the chief, but, you know, money was not invested in Zach Wheeler. They went cheap, and, you know, there's still JT Real Muto, if you want to bring up last year's deadline, or, you know, this upcoming offseason's free agency period, or even this year's deadline. Because they obviously got a huge problem behind the plate that needs to addressing, and there's no more perfect resolution to this than the acquisition of Real Muto. The price is right. His age is right. The position is right for us. The timing is right. Everything screams acquire this guy. So, again, I will just point to the one constant. General managers have come in and out of this organization, uh, and some things just do not change. Uh, Brody, to me, is merely Jeff's friend who told him, don't worry, bud, I got this. I can give you exactly what you want. Not what's in the best interest of a winning team, but I'll give you what you want. And me being more handsome and charismatic than the last guy, I'll push that message through. Uh, Rich, catching Wilson Ramos. You know, and this is also coming off of Nito having quite the great offensive performance so far. And since he, you know, single-handedly won us the game the other day, uh, I'm not even sure how many plate appearances he's gotten. With Wilson Ramos in there, I believe every start. Is that correct? Well, yeah, Wilson Ramos has – so the Mets have played – Mets are 9-14, and 14, so they've played 23 games. Ramos has played in 17 of them. Um, I believe all of those was a starter. There may be one that he didn't start, so he's definitely gotten you know two-thirds of, of the action. But I'll tell you what, I haven't been over a player as much as I'm over Wilson Ramos in, in a long time. Um, the guy, I mean, what does he do right at this point, you know? And the, the worst thing you could say about a player, and I'm not saying this is true. I'm talking perception now. Perception is that he, his effort isn't there. Um, look at what Anthony Recker said in the postgame, the pass ball. He's like, yeah, I know he was set up inside and the pitch missed outside over the plate or maybe off the corner. He goes, you've got to catch that ball. You, you have to. You know, and the tag the other night. This is a 10-year, or lack of a tech, this is, the, this is a 10-year veteran. And he's way out in front of the plate, and his technique of going to, to, to get the runner, he's got to go over his knee. The technique is just way off. Offensively, he's lost. 
I mean, he can't throw anybody out. The guy is an absolute liability on the team right now, an absolute liability all around. And, you know, it's laughable that he has an option next year. Yeah, really? Okay, no no, thank you. And um, the question is, where do they go now? I mean, everybody's like, oh, you know, Tomas Nito. Well, did he have a great game Thursday? Of course he did. It was wonderful to see. Tomas Nito's not the answer. I mean, and at this point – the Mets are going to have to cobble it together for the, you know, for the remaining games this season and, and just try to survive with what they have with Ramos and Nito. And, and just it, catching is going to be a black hole the rest of the way. But they've got to address that. Because they have a lot of needs in the offseason, and we'll talk about many of them. But they have got to address this catching situation because, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm overly biased at this point. Tell me if I'm wrong, but... Ramos right now is an absolute anchor on this team. I mean, I don't mean in a good way. I mean, like he's dragging them down kind of an anchor. And it's like, it's just such a glaring hole on both sides. You know, even if you have Nito out there, I personally don't think Nito's much of a hitter. I know he had a great day Thursday. At least you'll get good framing. He'll call a good game. He maybe could throw somebody out. He could make a contribution. Ramos can't do that at this point. And it really hurts. And, and catching is a very key position. It really hurts them that they that they're struggling with, with him back there. So yeah, I mean that's my comment on Ramos. Uh, I mean I, I don't have to I can't agree with you. I mean uh, in terms of that anchor element um, with with uh, Nido or Nito, uh, and I'll go to you, John, next on this. You know the one thing that you're going to get from him is he's trying to prove himself, and right now so far he seems to be doing a better job at the overall game of catching on both sides than, than Ramos is. And Ramos is just, it, it, he's, he's a completely, you know, like when you're watching, let's go to uh, that play specifically on Friday night, when you're watching it, all you're thinking to yourself is dive a little bit more, man, dive. <laughs> I, I'm going to leave this off by saying I feel awful for Wilson Ramos. And I, I think it's a possibility that, that this is a step further than what Rich is saying about being a complete anchor. I think that there's a possibility that what we're seeing is perhaps the end of Wilson Ramos's career. He, it, it happens with some players. When players get old and they get ineffective, sometimes it happens like that. It's ha- it happened with Roberto Alomar, as we saw. It happened with a guy like Ron Say. And it, it happens to plenty of players. And with, with Wilson having gone through so many injuries in his career and playing the position he has, you look at the way the technique that he has, just like what Rich is saying, the technique going down to a knee, the technique on a tag. It's, it seems like this is a guy that might be breaking down before our very eyes. And it sucks. It sucks because it could be mistaken for a lack of trying a lack of caring and a lack of effort. Uh, and I saw some people, some very influential baseball people on, on Twitter say that about Ramos, that, that if, he, if you're not going to care, then you might as well opt out. And then you see a tweet with a quote from Ramos saying, man, you know, I don't really see my family on the road anymore because of, because of the pandemic. So all I do now is when I have a tough night, I sit in my hotel room and I, I obsess over it all the time. This isn't somebody who is going through a lack of caring. 
This is somebody I think is going through a really tough time physically and mentally, and it could be the end. It's, and it's terrible to see. Now, it does mean that they're going to have to address the catcher situation. Nito, I think, can be a help. I mean, listen, guys like A.J. Ellis have gone through a, a nice long career latching on to ace pitchers like Clayton Kershaw and being their personal catcher. Maybe that happens with Tomas Nito. He certainly has enough ability defensively to do that, and I certainly think he could help a defensive lineup, like when they put out Guillaume and Jimenez and Billy Hamilton up the middle. I think that could be a nice lineup. You're going to have to pray for runs. But, yeah, after that, you're going to have to shore up that position, and a lot of people are already talking about JT Realmuto, and I'm sure they'll be clamoring over him for all offseason, but, man, that seems to me like – like something, somebody we're going to obsess over, but he's going to break our hearts by signing an 11-year deal with somewhere r- random like Arizona. That's the way it feels to me, unless, of course, we get a new owner that's willing to spend some money. But, yeah, I, th- I think this is going to be another train that runs into a brick wall when it's all said and done. And ownership is certainly somewhere we're going to go at some point. But I'm going to go back to what you said, John, about the psychological element, uh, elements and I'm going to go to Mike with this, there is that to think about. He did put that, that thing about uh, how his post games are these days, uh, especially when he, he has a bad game. Um, so I think there's a lot of merit to everything John said about what we're seeing with Wilson Ramos. Sure. I'm compassionate to that. I have feelings. He has feelings just like everyone else does. But the pragmatist in me says his knees are worn. He has no mobility. He's a liability behind the plate and to our pitchers, starting rotation in particular. Uh, and me personally, I place uh, heavy emphasis and, and much value in a defensive receiver. So this is all before the tweet, the post game, the game itself, or even – this last week of action. I never liked the acquisition in the first place. So that's where I stand. Can't argue with that. You are listening to a Mexican podcast for about a half hour in. And um, I going around with that, uh, John, what are, what are some of the other glaring holes on this, this team right now that you, you really just want to get off your chest? <laughs> well, it's, I, I do think, like I said, you know, Alonzo's struggling. Ramos is struggling. Ahmed Rosario, who seems to always make great strides as, as the season goes along, is really struggling, reaching for outside pitches, uh, trying to pull everything. And he's hitting 200. I think that's something that um, he, I think he's somebody that's going through it right now. You know, there are some bright spots. When they put that defensive lineup out there, Andres Jimenez, I think, is somebody that could be he looks like somebody that could be a rock for some team somewhere. Hopefully it's the Mets, but his instincts and his reflexes and the, the way he thinks the game is just so natural and so fluent. I can't remember the last time the Mets had a shortstop quite like that that's been so steady. I wouldn't even put Reyes in that discussion because Reyes had a lot of ability and a lot of flash. Um, but never struck me as somebody who just 
thought the game. You know, maybe that's not fair of me because Reyes did play a very, very, uh, a very good shortstop, excellent shortstop. Maybe, maybe Ray Ordonez is the guy you have to go all the way back to in terms of instinct. So there's, there's things that can be built upon. There's bright spots for sure. I think, and, and this might be a stopgap for me, but I think what Luis Rojas has to do right now is do what he said in the beginning of the season before the season started and say that in a 60-game season, you've got to manage to win. I don't think he's there yet. And I say that because I, I think he's still managing for a 162-game season, trying to get Rich Porcello a sixth inning, trying to get Steven Matz through a tough inning in the fifth against the Phillies, not having somebody up with Walker Lockett in the fifth inning against Philadelphia. Now, three in a row. I don't think today was as egregious as the other two. But I think the one thing that Rojas has to do at this point, from this point forward, is to not worry about egos and not worry about hurting feelings and not worry about, oh, well, let's see what he's got. Let's see if he can get through this. This isn't the season for that. You have a relative strength in the bullpen. You have extra relievers because the roster is bigger. So if somebody gets into the biggest, the littlest hint of trouble in the starting rotation, you get somebody up. When the sixth inning starts, you get somebody up. Have somebody warm so that you don't have to wait for Andrew McCutcheon to hit a home run to get somebody in. Or you don't have to wait for Bryce Harper to hit a seed off of the right field wall. And I think the same is true in terms of Wilson Ramos. If, if this is indeed the end, or even if it's not, but this play from Ramos is, is, continues, and I, I feel and as bad as I feel for Ramos as, and as I've articulated that, now's not the time to worry about his ego. If Tomas Nito can give you more production, even if it's just defensively at this point, then he should play some more. I think the pitchers would enjoy – throwing to him, not that they don't enjoy throwing to Ramos, but, you know, there, there was that conversation last year. So I think if, if Luis Rojas stops worrying about egos, then maybe we get a little stability going here, and maybe we even get a little accountability going here, and maybe they could chase a fringe wild card spot and hopefully, and, and hopefully just get a good feeling back in the room. Uh, so many different places to go, Rich, uh, but I want to start with Jimenez um, because the Ray Ordonez comparison is spot on. However, this kid, and, and obviously, you know, the, the book could be out on him soon, but he seems naturally to be a better hitter than, than Ray Ordonez ever was. Uh, no? I, I don't know who's comparing him to Ray Ordonez. I wouldn't insult the kid that way. Um Uh, Ray Ordonez had a couple, like three, I believe, outstanding defensive seasons. That's his resume. He was not a good offensive player. He, He wasn't dynamic on the bases. And he fell off the table very quickly. And if you remember what Bob Klapish wrote, I believe it was 2001, that the Mets had extreme concerns. He had put on a lot of weight. And his effort, they said that he, and this is just coming from Bob Clappish, I remember you guys probably remember, remember the article, that Ordonez was, was viewed as lazy by the organization. He had become lazy and put on a lot of weight. And then he was gone shortly thereafter. 
So, I mean, Ordonez to me was a guy, he was he did one thing well for a couple of years. Okay, you know, no taking that away from him. He was clearly a magician with the glove for a couple of seasons. Andres Jimenez, because of his athletic ability, automatically has, a, has the ability to be a much better player than Ordonez ever was. Andres Jimenez can do, uh, seemingly, you know, it's obviously it's a very small sample size, can do a lot of what Ordonez used to do, you know, with the plays behind the bag and, and the great throws, and he has a great arm. But then on the offensive side, I mean, you've got a guy who can hit, and you've got a guy who's dynamic on the base pass. I believe he's leading the major leagues in stolen bases. If not, he's second. So you've got a complete player, the beginning of a complete player here. So I, I think the comparison isn't to Ordonez. I, I think the, the comparison about what he could be is more like a Lindor. I think it's a guy like that. Maybe not with Lindor's power, but a guy who can um, who can you know put up put up serious numbers on both sides. So I would go with a comparison that way. I wouldn't limit him to comparing him to Ordonez, who was a quintessential one-dimensional player. So yeah, I, I'm a big Andres Jimenez fan. I hope they don't screw this kid up. Um, I certainly hope they don't move him. You know, in the off season, out of I think honestly, if, if you look at it, that while the Mets. Credit to the Mets because their farm system has gone up to 20th, um, as rank, is now ranked 20th from 27th, I believe, at its lowest. So they're, they're inching up there. Uh, but the position where they have the most depth, the shortstop, you've got a young Ahmed Rosario, you've got Andres Jimenez, and then you've got Ronnie Mauricio. So I think if you're going to see a move in the offseason from a position, I think it's pretty likely that move would come from shortstop because that's where they've got depth. Um, I think Rosario is, is the likely one to go. Certainly don't want it to be Jimenez because he is not a kid you trade. He's a kid, when you look at, when you look at his upside based on his athleticism and, and his ability to, to do it on both sides, the future is it, it's really exciting to watch this kid develop. And, um, you know, he didn't have – and, you know, and we all, oftentimes we will knock the Mets, and, and it's well-deserved, but – in a case like this, everybody raised their eyebrows. The reporters did. We did. You know, why is Andres Jimenez on this team? Well, what are they doing, you know, in the short season, blah, 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 blah. And it, and it was a fair criticism at the time, but now you see why. What, what they wanted him to have, they wanted him to have the ability to continue to develop because what's going on in these, you know, these alternate sites are playing squad games and stuff like that. That's not what you want to do to a top prospect. You don't want that to be his entire season. You know, he's just playing squad games in Brooklyn. They took a risk. They said, Let, let's see if we could have him on the major league roster, get him in some games, and continue his development, sort of accelerate that development. And clearly it's happening. So, you know, as I look at the first 23 games, there are so many negatives and so many points of frustration. There are a couple of bright spots, and Andres Jimenez is probably the brightest of all those spots. And uh, I'm going to go back to you, John, for rebuttal uh, <laughs> with the, the Ray Ardonia's part before I go to uh, Mike. Well, uh, what I was, I was basically looking at Mets and not the rest of the league, and I was basically looking at defense. I, certainly, Jimenez looks very much, um, very more, much more polished offensively than Ardonia's ever was. I was just purely talking about instincts in the field that Ray Ordonez is best. So I, I can't argue with Rich. No, and, and John, my comment wasn't directed at you. It was directed at 
a lot of people are saying that he's an or like Ordonez, and, and to me it's like, whoa, whoa, not that, you know? I mean, yeah. this kid is <laughs> yeah, just of course, yeah, like like, like Rich said, Ordonez is a, was a flash in the pan. Hopefully, Jimenez has some staying power. He's he's very polished. That's I think that's the thing that impresses me the most. He's polished defensively, and I think he's getting there offensively. You could see there's some tools that he could work with. Yeah, and I wasn't trying to uh, suggest that there was any toxicity in the room, fellas, but I, I just felt like uh, that was the, the, the place I needed to go. And, Mike, I'm going to go here nah, with never, you. never. With, Lu- <laughs> with Louis Rojas, Mike. In uh, everything we're talking about and the way you need to balance these, these lineups, the way you need to balance in the field lineups, um, from what you've heard tonight, you've brought up Louis Rojas a number of times. There have been a number of points regarding it, and I have yet to ask a question. Where do you want to go, Mike, with what the, the job that Louis Rojas is doing right now? I'm cool with him. Uh, I've always said, for the most part, players make managers good, bad, or irrelevant. They get a lot of credit when teams go well. They get a lot of blame when teams go badly. You know, but in each and every case, players and their performance on the field make managers rather irrelevant. That being said, I'm, I'm cool with Rojas, you know, at least for this season. He's a resume man. He earned this opportunity. So no problems there per se. But, you know, allow me to take this conversation back to the dark side because this was a rant. <laughs> and I would just say, you know, here we are at 9-14. and 14. The guys, Wilson Ramos and Cano and Waka and Porcello and Diaz, and I'd say with great confidence, I'm sure this team would be far more electric and fun to watch and more competitive younger and more vibrant had Alonzo and Conforto and Lugo and McNeil and Wheeler and Ahmed Rosario have been surrounded by your Jared Kelnick or your Justin Duns and your Anthony Kay and your Andre Jimenez. So yeah. I, I guess I, that points back to yeah. team construction it points back to your general manager, and it points back to your COO. Rich, just everything he's saying, you know, like thinking about some of these pieces and going to the word electric. It, uh, I mean, what? It's and that's just what it is. Sometimes watching these teams year in year out is just knowing that there's something here. This this team could have been a World Series champion. Every Mets team could have could have been a World Series champion, including '62. What goes wrong? And in this instance, we keep going back to that COO. And I guess in terms of the the you know I, uh, the news that we heard, the rumor that we're hearing that the Arod squad is is at the forefront of this, and there's been a lot kind of torn apart about that that it would kind of just be just like the Wilpons. I mean, it, it, everybody could either have their way of doing things, uh, uh, you know, indecently, um, just like Jeff Wilpon does his way of indecency, uh, or it, it, you know, 
they might not spend the money, but they might just make smarter baseball decisions. Um, one way or another, it just keeps coming back to that. And I, I don't want to keep beating the, I don't keep beating that Jeff Wilpon drum, but it's just, it's sometimes hard not to. Well, you know, it, it's Jeff Wilpon. See, I, when I, when I think about it, I, I don't, it's not so much Jeff to me. He's a huge part of it, but it's like the the it's the way the team approaches running. It's the way the owners approach putting a baseball team on the field. It's the constant, you know, trying to shop in the in the bargain aisle, and and then somehow, you know, either acting surprised or apologizing to the fans in the season when it doesn't work out. That that's the thing that gets me. And, and is Jeff the face of it? Sure, he is. But, you know, it's like Mike said, when Nelson Doubleday stepped out and, you know, was bought out by, by the Wilpons, you know, he said that they would run it into the ground. And, and I, think it, it's, I think that's what it is. I think it's just a, a bad ownership group with a bad philosophy. Now, granted, that philosophy probably comes – what did we see the other day? Maybe they lost $90 million last year, which is a ton of money. So I'm not quite sure how that is or if that's accurate, what those books look like. But whatever the reason, the way this team is run, and yes, like I said, Jeff is the face of it, but it's the entire ownership group. They, they, they just choose for whatever reason, and, and if, if what we're hearing is accurate, that they're losing money to that tune, then I don't know how that is in the first place and in the second place, they operate on that premise. So, so what they're doing, they're not acting like the Dodgers. They're not acting like the Yankees. They're not acting like the Cubs. They shop in the bargain aisles, and then they get, you know, mediocre at best result. Last year was fun in the second half, absolutely. You get, generally speaking, you get mediocre results, and then it's like a cycle. It's like rinse, lather, repeat. Then, you know, you apologize to the fans, and you say that, you know, our fans are entitled to better, and we have a commitment to win now and in the future, and then you go out and do the same thing. You build a team by grabbing parts that you find affordable and then trying to sell it as, you know, as a competitive team. And it's the same thing at the end of the year when you apologize and you do the same thing the next year. So that's why it's an entire cultural change. Yeah, ownership is 90% of it. But what this team needs, it needs an entire cultural change to start being seen as an aggressive team, a team that doesn't just talk, you know, doesn't just apologize and say we're going to try to win, a team that, that demonstrates it. That's not – don't just, you know, dabble and say, oh, we're monitoring the market. They, they make a splash. They go out and they get the big guy, and they compete like a major market team. So to me, that's what it is. It, it, it's, yeah, it's Jeff, sure it is, but it's cultural. It, it's, it's the way in which they're operated, the messaging they use. The, you know, no, the, it's kind of like the, they're trying to do the whole thing with smoke and mirrors to keep you happy, keep you just happy enough. It's all of that needs to change. It, all of it, not just Jeff Wilpon. The whole thing needs to change. That's my opinion. No, you're ooh, absolutely ooh, right. Ooh, can thing. I? Can I? It, can it, I jump in? Ooh, 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 I'm going to be Horseshack from uh, <laughs> Horseshack. Carter. Can I jump in? Um, I think you're absolutely right, Rich. But I'm going to make a connection here. You say that it's not just Jeff that the culture needs to change. Jeff is the culture. To a degree, He's the yes. culture. He's the culture, yes, he, he's the culture because he has his hands in everything. He makes baseball decisions, he makes financial decisions, he makes operational decisions. He's got his hands in everything 
to a fault. So when you say the culture needs to change, you're absolutely right. Jeff is more of a part of that culture than, than anybody realizes or remembers. So I do think that replacing Jeff in a large way replaces that culture because then you could run your operation like, like most other major league baseball teams operate with a team president, which the Mets don't have. And I think they're only one of two teams that don't have a team president. Uh, so yeah, I think the two are definitely related. And I will also add that not only do they shop in the bargain bin, but how many of these mediocre free agents that the Mets have gotten have been former Yankees. And I'm not, and and listen, if a former Yankee can help the Mets win, I'm all for it. But these players that come in, it almost seems like Jeff thinks that they want to grab, that he wants to grab some sort of, uh, not karma, but almost like, oh, well, people will come to see Robinson Cano play because he was so good as a Yankee and we can market him. Oh, people will come to see Todd Frazier because Todd Frazier was just here and he helped the Yankees to the playoffs. And there, there, there's other guys that I'm sure that I'm forgetting, but those two stick out because they're the most recent. And maybe you guys can, can remember a couple of more that Jeff Wilpon brought in as one of these mid-level guys that was going to save the franchise because he was the 24th man on, man. on one of the Yankees teams in the, in the early 2000s. El Duque. El Duque would be that. But that was also Omar Minaya. But Omar Minaya uh, is very much as Mike has, has listed and gone down the, the order, of, the pecking order, uh, how until Sandy Alderson, everything's been connected to the Wilpons, and they go with their guys. I'm going to go back to you, John, before I do the last round the horn. Um, do you believe that if the Wilpons weren't protected by the baseball mob, uh, even though they're selling right now, that they would have already been forced to sell a long time ago with losses and, you know, having to – I mean, they borrowed, what, like $60 million or something from baseball? I mean, again, going to the question, does the baseball mob protect the Wilpons too much? Absolutely 100%. And all you need to do is compare the Wilpons situation to Frank McCourt. If you believe that what the Wilpons did as a whole was worse or even the same as what Frank McCourt did, if you believe that, then you have to believe that the baseball mob is protecting them. And it started with Bud Selig, and it continued with Rob Manfred from day one. So, yes, I, I do believe 100% rubber stamp it right now. And, of course, you know, uh, McCourt was using uh, the funds as their personal piggy bank. Um, but I believe it was in the number, Mike, of like $340 million. And if you do want to equate in some fashion the amount of money lost uh, by the Wilpons within the Madoff campaign, uh, close to a billion dollars, $700 to $800 million, um, that's all of a sudden vanished from operation. Uh, and let's also, re- let's also remind all everybody that uh, the, 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 the position that John was referring to that most baseball teams have, the team president, Generally, that entire position name is the president of operations. Why don't we have a president of operations? Well, because the person who would generally be the president of operations has decided to call himself the chief, oper- the chief operating officer. Yeah, uh, I'm in lockstep with John. 
you guys know I've been screaming for a president of baseball operations for a while. Separate ownership from actual baseball operations. Just hand down your mandate to this is exactly what I want, and then your president moves forward with that in mind and takes care of all baseball operations. Um, McCourt, baseball had to rain down on him because, as you say, Sam, he was using the team as his personal piggy bank, whereas the Wilpons did not uh, do that in their situation with the Mets. Uh, the Mets were simply investing money with Madoff and using those proceeds as part of their operational expense. And when that blew up in their face, they ran out of that money and the lawsuit tried getting a hold of a whole bunch of it. They got some, not all. Uh, and today, presently, very recently, the number came out within the last six months, I think just before the pandemic, it was reported in the tabloids that they are still upwards of $700 million in debt. And Rich, the figure that you threw out, also still includes their city field debt. So there's operating losses, uh, and, you know, city field is still very, very burdensome to their wallet. Uh, I'm straying. I will leave you guys with this last thought, like father, like son. Once upon a time, Fred is kicking back and says to Saul, yo, the bets are for sale. Let's buy them. I got $625,000. Can you match that? And Saul's like, yeah. And they make the bid. And it's accepted. And then Saul and Fred look at each other and say, all right, now we just got to find some schmuck who's going to put up 80% of the cost of this thing and not have him or her realize that they won't have any real operation operational control. We'll make the fine print so small that we'll need a microscope to read it. And that's exactly what happened to Nelson Doubleday. He found out the hard way. So, you know, it's in the genes. I'll say that much. But, you know, to start this in 2003 and pick up with Jeff, that's a whole episode unto itself. But the story starts in 1980 when Fred and his brother-in-law are chilling out and say, Hey, Lorinda's going to sell the Mets. She's our bud. Let's have her sell it to us. Meanwhile, Ed Cranepool was sitting there with a bid in as well, and his got rejected. Could you imagine if we were in the hands of Ed Crankle? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, Mike, I'm going to stick with you because stick before we you. get to an hour out, uh, I, I just want to talk about the 100th anniversary of Negro League, Negro League Baseball, well, specifically the Negro National League. Uh, and and uh, MLB uh, had everybody wear patches today, and, and as we're celebrating it throughout the day and throughout the weekend, in fact, and I, I hope you can shed some light for all of our listeners on something that doesn't get talked about enough. Uh, very quickly, I'll try to throw out as much information just in a minute or so. Uh, just to clarify, what they mean by the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues speaks specifically of the Negro National League that was formed in 1920 by Rube Foster, who is in the Hall of Fame. All other professional major leagues 
of Negro League Baseball follow-up. Uh, also in 1920, the Negro Southern League is established as a minor league. So those two leagues are celebrating the centennial. In 1923, a gentleman named Nat Strong and a couple other guys form the Negro, uh, excuse me, the Eastern Colored League uh, to go up against the Negro National League. So again, the league formed by Rube Foster is what we're actually celebrating. That's the centennial. Uh, baseball has a long history prior to that, uh, just as the game itself. Very quickly, I think you'd be amused to find out that when Jackie Robinson played with the Kansas City Monarchs, Per Satchel Page, he says he wasn't even good enough to break in into the infield, not first, second, third, or short. Goes, goes a way of saying how good that infield was. Uh and on that note, Monty Irvin was first approached by Branch Rickey in 1945. Uh, Ethel Manley, half-owner with her husband Abe of the Newark Eagles, and the rest of the Negro National League owners thought that Monty Irvin would be the first Negro to break the uh, color barrier and integrate baseball. Uh, they were sure of it. But Monty Irvin said when approached by Branch Rickey, no, thank you. Uh, I um, just very recently discharged from the service, and I don't believe I'm in uh, baseball shape, put that in quotes, paraphrase. And he respectfully declined. And then, you know, the rest is history, as they say. But Monty Irvin could have been that man, and that's one of the greatest ifs of all time, I think, uh, in baseball and American history and culture. Uh, locally, we have the Brooklyn Royal Giants, great team from 1905 through 1942. Uh, some other local clubs that played either here in the city or at Hinchliffe Stadium in Patterson, New Jersey. You have the New York Black Yankees, uh, the Cubanex Giants, the New York Lincoln Giants, and those are just some of the local clubs. So, happy anniversary to Negro League Baseball. You know, Rich, um, when I was a kid, I didn't even think about, while watching Michael Jordan uh, transcend and become a, a, a world-renowned figure, I didn't even think about the idea that 50 years before he wouldn't have even been allowed on what was considered the major league of basketball. Um, and so, you know, like Mike was saying, and, and like we were discussing on the other podcasts as well, that sometimes you forget how, for one thing, I mean, it's only been a century of media and, and presentation of, of information from, from a, this type of media perspective as we're familiar with now. Um, and how skewed that presentation has been that sometimes you forget when, when this stuff is brought up and, and when the memory of it is not necessarily talked about enough, uh, the fact that it, it wasn't long ago that this stuff was, were, were major issues and still are really. Yeah, no, it's, um, I had to explain it to, to my daughter today. She, she's like, what's that patch they're wearing? And I went through a little bit of the story that, you know, the Negro Leagues existed until 19, you know, the late 40s, even a bit beyond that. 
Um, but until that time, you know, there were there was no place for people of color to play in, in Major League Baseball. And it's just um, when you think about it, you, you know, and, and I love that story that, that Mike told about Jackie Robinson not being able to crack the infield. And you think about all the talent Major League Baseball was not able to experience in the 20s, 30s, and 40s because these guys were forced to play in that setting um, and not able to play Major League Baseball. You know, on the one hand, good for them that they have a league and that they, they did their thing. But on the other, um, you know, kind of like, like shame on society, you know. That's really all you can say. Um, the Civil War had ended, what, you know, uh, 50 years, 60 years before, I think the Negro League 1920, so it, it ended 60 years before almost. And, and this kind of stuff was still going on, where, where these guys had to have a league of their own, and I know use the term, and had to play separately. Um, and, and again, good for them that they did, but shame on society that they had to. That, that's where I would leave it. You know, John, it's just interesting. Babe Ruth, the only time that he ever really was able to face these guys was in barnstorming uh, that that a lot of players were doing, not just the, the Negro Leagues, but also some of the, the white major leaguers. Um, it, you know, it's just, it really is. It's only, you can only wonder what the entire league would have looked like had this not been a barrier. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Bob Kendrick is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And for those of you out there listening, if you've never been to the museum in Kansas City, go. You're going to have an excellent time, and you're going to see a lot of history about this league that will blow your mind, uh, and certainly a lot of artifacts. I mean, the, the, most, the most random thing in the museum, I'll just bring this up, is the signed baseballs that are on display that were donated to the museum by – does anybody know this? Anybody, anybody want to guess? No, Mike, I don't know what. You'll never guess. Getty Lee, the lead singer of Rush, really had tons of <laughs> signatures of Negro League baseball players, absolutely true, that he donated to the museum. We're talking the, the big ones, Cool Papa Bell, Josh Gibson, Buck O'Neill. All of those guys, Larry Doby, all of those guys, he had a collection of it, and he donated it to the museum. I'm telling you, this place will blow your mind. So getting back to Kendrick, he was doing an interview last night during one of the Korean baseball games. And, yes, I still watch the Korean Baseball League. I DVR every game, and I watch them at 1 o'clock in the morning the next day. And he was talking about the upcoming 100th anniversary of the, uh, of the league. And what he said was, look, the Negro Leagues represented – it certainly represented a dark time in history because of the continued segregation and because of the fact that these stars like Bell and Gibson uh, and, and Buck O'Neill couldn't, couldn't play in the majors. But he said, you know what? You had – the fact that we had a league that could showcase the very best – of our players, just like Major League Baseball showcased the best of white America, the Negro Leagues showcased the best of African American players, and it was and it was glorious. And he and he said, anybody that comes to the museum, anybody that 
talks about the Negro Leagues, he, he would want us to focus on that, that not that it was segregated, although it was, although it's definitely a part of history and a part that should be noted, but also remember what great baseball that there was in these leagues and what great players there were in these leagues that still get talked about today uh, in a mythical sense, like Josh Gibson hitting the longest baseball anybody's ever seen. Uh, I wish I could remember the name of the player who they said that he was so fast that he'd turn out the lights and he'd still be light when, when he'd be under the covers. Players like that. So, so let's on, on this day, let's celebrate the Negro leagues and, and remember what great baseball was played. Here, here. Uh, and I, I, I heed everybody to, to head out there when it's finally, uh, when everything's finally back to normal and, you know, in a safe and uh, healthy fashion, of course. And for, for now though, uh, one of the things you can do, shameless plug, is go to Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, where uh, our Mike LeColant has at least unfolded the Brooklyn Royal Giants side of things, and it's pretty remarkable uh, attention to detail that he has uh, put forward for us. So thank you, Mike, for that. And uh, before we, we leave, uh, as you all have been listening to a Metzian podcast, uh, I'm just going to go around the horn for anything that we haven't touched upon. I'll start with you, Rich. Is there anything that you wanted to mention? No, I think we hit it all. I think we hit, you know, the change in ownership. But we, one thing we didn't really hit on directly was that um, something came out just now, late this afternoon, actually, and it's, been, it's being written about now, that the A-Rod group is um, considered to be the favorite at this point. And I don't think it's a matter of money. You know, tell me what you guys think. I know obviously nobody can outbid Steve Cohen, but I believe I'm, I'm hearing that um, there are some concerns by the owners um, about having Steve Cohen in the fraternity, so to speak, because of some of his past uh, business dealings that, that uh, maybe weren't quite above board. And, um, and if that ends up being the case, what a shock. I'm not even talking about A-Rod. That's the obvious. That's the easy one. Oh, you know, A-Rod, Mets fan, played for the Yankees, owning the Mets. I'm not talking about that. What a turnaround it would be. Because everybody's assuming, we are everybody assuming Steve Cohen's going to be owner of the Mets, Uncle Stevie, all this kind of stuff. And if it ends up not happening, regardless of who it is, I think it's even more ironic that it might be you know, a group led by A-Rod, but regardless of who it is, how do you guys react to that? I mean, because it was, it was considered like a de facto done deal, you know, that it was going to be Steve Cohen, but the reports are, are out there now that it might be the A-Rod group. And, and, again, it doesn't explicitly say because the, uh, the owners won't approve Cohen, but I have to think that's the case. What do you guys think? John, I'm going to go to you first, but I'll say this. Like, you've you got to think about the hubris of these guys, which also I'm grooving Robert Manfred into, into this. Um, it's just like history repeating itself. If you know anything about the history of, the way owners look at the next generation. I, uh, I'm not surprised that they wouldn't want Cohen to be the, uh, the new owner. I think if, uh, if that was the case, I think if they were comfortable with Cohen as the owner, I think he'd be the owner already. I think it would have been rubber stamped. He's, he's already in, an investor in the team. He's got a ton of money. He'll operate the Mets in a way befitting a top market franchise. I think if it was anybody else, I don't think the uh, 
the the other owners would have a problem with it. But because it's Steve Cohen and because he's uh, pissed some people off before, I think they're finding any any solution that doesn't involve him. And it's a shame. I have no qualms about A-Rod being a former Yankee. I don't have uh, qualms about him per se. I have qualms about the amount of people he had to get into this bid to make the money high enough for the owners to look over his way. I think they're going to bend over backwards to try to get A-Rod as an owner because of the name recognition and, and because of the name recognition of some of the other bidders, like, uh, like some of the NFL stars, like Travis Kelsey uh, and, and, and the like. They were even talking that Mason Plumley, who used to play for the Nets, would be an investor, which is just very random and weird. But I think that it would be, it would be a shame if that were to happen, especially since A-Rod came out in support of a salary cap. He's, he denies it, but he basically said everybody's got to work together. So he's definitely not going to be on the side of the players in a lot of this. So, yeah, it scares me. I think it would be the final middle finger to Mets fans if that were to happen. Wow. You know, and, again, I got, no, I got nothing against A-Rod, but I think that this is something that baseball is going to try and craft. And I, don't, I think it's in everybody's best interest except the Mets. That's how I think that they're thinking on that. Um, and the last two things I want to say is that the player who I, I mentioned who was so fast he can get in the bed while the room was still light, that was Cool Papa Bell. I just looked it up. Yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, I just wanted to throw that in. You're here on that little anecdote for our listeners at the end there. Uh, but, Mike, I'll go, I'll go to you with the ownership uh, stuff. Um, how do we go from – Jeff Wilpon announcing that Steve Cohen and they are working on a deal to where we are now. <laughs> the Mets by any other name are still the Mets. I think Shakespeare said that. Uh, I believe it when I see it. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not so sure who's uh, behind A-Rod's uh, backing his group. Uh, I remember reading it. I just can't recall it. I think Bankers. But it doesn't matter. What matters here is that ownership is a closed network. We don't know what they're thinking or what, you know, what, what's what's in store for us. Uh, and times change, uh, as John alluded to. You know, it's a different generation going on here. It's like what George Carlin said: yeah. "It's all one big club, and we ain't in it." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of the best of all time. Um, ladies, you, lady, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> yes, who was that? No, that's nothing. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to a Metzian podcast, and we're so thankful that you do. Again, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever uh, you, you get podcasts. Go over there and subscribe and let us know if we are not there, and we will make sure to be there the next time you check. Uh, we, we always finish with the last word, and uh, first I'm going to go to John Coppinger of Metstradamus to give us not only his final word, uh, but first a shameless plug. Tell everybody where you can, uh, where they can find you. 
Shameless plug, metstradamusblog.com. That's the easy one. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Metstradamus. Uh, so uh, those are probably the best two ways to find me. Come yell at me, talk to me, whatever you want. My final word is that I believe that before the end of the season, we're going to see a major league appearance by Matthew Allen. On the All map. right, all right. Little little prophecy uh, by Metrodamus there. I, I like it. So we'll we'll see if that prophecy comes true. Thank you, John. Of course, for joining us. And I'm Thank going to go to Mike for first. Me. Thank you, man. Yeah, no, of course. As always, you're always welcome back. And I'm going to go to Mike Lacolmont next for his last word. Last word. Thank you, Sam, for that plug, and you know, for everybody listening, delve into the Negro League Centennial. It's a lot of fun, a lot of history. Thank you, as always, Mike. And, and Rich, I'm going to go you, to you last for your last word. Mine, I guess, is more trite. I'm going to go with uh, two words, wake up. The Mets need to wake up. You know, they, they have eight teams will make the playoffs in each league. The door is wide open. They look like they're asleep, and I know that that's not you – know, who knows what kind of effort they're putting. That's not what I'm talking about. They just look dead. They look awful. So I'd like them to, uh, you know, to wake the hell up here, and and get them and get themselves righted. You know, they the season is slipping away. Let, let's let's tighten up some of these screws that are loose, like the defense and the situational hitting and 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 that kind of stuff, and just wake the hell up and play better baseball. Thank you, Rich. And my last word is fundies, or good ones rather. Play some good fundies, everybody. Uh, just tighten the ship up like, like uh, Rich alluded to with those screws. Uh, that's basically it. And, and the only other thing I can say is for everybody, uh, because unfortunately as much as I like to try to avoid it and I like to try to avoid it on this podcast, uh, needs to keep their guard up and stay safe and healthy with this entire thing. We don't even know whether we're going to finish the season, but uh, right now uh, as things just keep marching along, all of a sudden we are getting used to baseball again. We are getting used to sports again. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we need to let our guard down. Never uh, need to let your guard down. So keep uh, the, the wits about you out there. Uh, stay safe. Stay healthy. Con- and and that, that doesn't just, that's not just a, a well wish. That's also, you know, make sure you're taking care of your immune system. Make sure you're putting up the proper guards to prevent yourself from, from potentially getting this thing. And, and again, thank you to Metrodamus for joining us. Thank you, John. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Rich. And thank you to all all of you out there, and there's only one way to finish this, and I'm going to go to you, Rich, for it. And that would be something that hopefully we'll be able to say all together in person and, you know, not eight months or so when the new season begins, and that would be let's go Mets. Let's, let's go Mets. go Mets. Let's go Mets, everybody. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night. Good night. Bye now. Thank you, guys. Let's go Mets.